Amen, amen. Thank you, worship band. That was awesome to have kind of an acoustic sound as we uh, start off this new year. Happy New Year, City Light. Welcome to the very first day of uh, 2023, and we have the opportunity to be able to gather here together. So just a quick survey. I want you to raise your hand if you've made at least one New Year's resolution today. All right, that's awesome. Or keep your hands up, keep your hands up. Or maybe you have chosen a word like discipline or freedom or timely that you're going to be looking to add growth. And all right, okay, that is really low. That's way below the national average of people that are making New Year's resolutions. Approximately half of adults in America will make some type of New Year's resolution. Um, Full disclosure here, I made a New Year's resolution. Mine's pretty simple. I'm not going to eat anything after 8.30 p.m. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. You Nobody has to tell me. I don't have to figure out if it's a healthy snack or not. If it's 8.31, I just don't get to eat. So I'll also be honest with, or making a good resolution is a process of looking back and evaluating the good things and the hard things that have happened throughout your year to determine if you're living the life the best way that you can. If you are taking care of the things that you value the most and are you doing things the right way, the best way, and then taking time to see if there is something that you can do, that little step that will make your life a little bit better. My resolution came about because I determined I never ate anything healthy after 8.30 p.m. And through my research, I found out you do not need potato chips or ice cream to survive. So it became pretty obvious that this is something that I should probably do. And to be honest, I've made this resolution a lot of different times. And um, statistics show that 20 to 25% of all resolutions fail in a week. Been there, done that. 10 to 15% fail within the first month. I've done that a few times. But get this, after six months, 45% of resolutions are still intact. The further you go with the resolution, the more likely it is that you're gonna be able to keep it. And if I told you that you had a 50-50 chance of making your life better in the next six months, wouldn't you go after it? The power of a resolution is such a great tool for you to take the time to evaluate where you're at, find something that's going to help you grow, and then go for it. If you fail, it's okay. Make another resolution and keep moving forward. Not only is this good advice for us personally, or at least a few of us are thinking that, the rest of you can make that decision later today. It's not too late to make a resolution for the 2023, but it's good advice for us corporately. This is a good time of year for us to be able to look at what is important to us at church and to make sure that we're implementing those things into our lives. So we're going to spend a couple few weeks here taking a look at our mission statement here at City Light. We want to be as a church to live out the unique mission that God has has given us. Last year, the elders of the church spent months praying and talking, and it culminated in a retreat that they went and combed through scripture, they talked, they conversed, they prayed, and they took our mission statement, and all of this conversation boiled down to one sentence. Magnify Jesus by multiplying disciples and churches. You can write that down at the top of your paper. We're gonna be talking about that for the next three weeks. Magnify Jesus by multiplying disciples in churches. We want to look at our mission statement and see what it means in our daily lives. 
Today, we're going to spend time talking about the first two words, magnify Jesus. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to be talking about multiplying disciples. And then the following Sunday, we'll be looking at multiplying churches. Our mission statement answers two questions. First, what are we doing? Second, how are we doing it? What are we doing? Magnifying Jesus. How are we doing it? By multiplying disciples and churches. The first part of our mission statement, Magnify Jesus, is based on Psalm 34. And we're going to look at Psalm 34, 1 through 10, to learn more about what we mean when we say magnify Jesus. But before we dig into the passage, it's probably important that we understand a little bit of the story that acts as the foundation for Psalm 34. Scholars have titled the psalm, and this is probably written in your uh, Bible on verse 1, like 1a, of David, meaning that David wrote it, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he, Abimelech, drove him, David, out, and he went away. So most of us know a little bit about David. If nothing else, we've been around a sporting event where they throw out the phrase David versus Goliath. And we understand that to mean that some small team ended up winning against some great team. And the David that we're talking about is the OG of that statement. David actually fought a giant named Goliath. And it was a huge, important battle or fight. And it was done in front of a huge audience. There was the army of Israel, that was David's homeland, that was watching. And then the army of Goth, which was Goliath's homeland. And David as a youth, which probably means something like a young teenager, comes out from the lines, lines of battle to face Goliath. He takes a sling, throws a rock, hits Goliath in the head, knocks him out, goes up to him, and he cuts his head off. He wins a battle that is literally to the death, and the victory is enormous in the results. The Israeli army defeats the Goth army. David becomes famous, and after this, the king of Saul, or Saul, the king of Israel, took David, brought him into his palace, and had him start working there. Things were working out great for David. And then Saul gets upset and decides he's going to kill David. So David flees out of the palace, and this is where the story uh, for the foundation of Psalm 34 takes place. David flees out of the palace, and he runs south to a small little town called Nob. And he's there at Nob, and he's begging the priest for some bread so that he could eat. And he looks across, and he sees a servant of Saul. And the servant sees David. And David immediately knows and understands that the servant's going to get word to the king. The king is going to send down warriors. They're going to chase him, and they're going to kill him. And then David makes a decision that shows how desperate he is. He decides to flee Nob and go west into Goth. Yeah, the place, the homeland of the giant Goliath. It doesn't make any sense to me why he made this decision. There have been a lot of scholars that have kind of talked it through. My best guess is that David thought to himself, where's the last place on earth Saul would look for me? Goth would definitely fit that bill. Nobody would have expected him to run to Goth. His second thought was probably, well, I killed Goliath when I was a young man or a young boy. I've grown up. I've got a beard. I look a little bit different. Maybe nobody will recognize me. So he packs up what he, little possessions he has. He runs over to Goth. He gets there, and his plan works for about five seconds. He is immediately recognized that David, he's immediately arrested and bound up, and he is being transported to the king. So think with me. David is bound up. 
being transported to the king, probably the only king on the planet who hates him more than Saul. And he knows that when he gets there, the king is going to cut his head off. Or worse, he's going to get beaten, he's going to get mocked, and then he's going to get his head cut off. And so here he is, he's traveling there, and I just know David is probably praying. It may be as simple as, God, save me. Or it could be as complicated and as deep of a conversation asking him, how have things gotten so messed up? But David, in route, comes up with a plan. He's going to act crazy in front of the king. He is going to be a raving lunatic. And by the time he gets there, he has filled his mouth and his beard with foam and spittle. He's wild-haired, wild-eyed, wandering around erratically. He's scribbling nonsense on the doors. And the king comes and he sees him. And this is what the king says. Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought uh, brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? that you brought this fellow to behave as a a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And then the king sends him away. David ends up escaping, flees back to Israel, and he's hiding in a cave alone, tired, and hungry. That's the foundation of Psalm 34. He is literally been in the frying pan, tossed into the fire, and then jumped back into the frying pan. And that's where he is at. And he is writing from one of the lowest, most difficult places in his life. So let's take a look at verse 1 and 2. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. David immediately jumps into straight to the point of what this psalm is. There is no recounting his position, no telling of his woes, but straight to his thoughts, which are God is good all the time. David's situation is not very good. He's still being hunted by Saul. He is alone and hiding in a cave. But David knows that he has been delivered from certain death from the king of Goth. He knows exactly what God has done for him. Do you and I forget that sometimes? To be honest, do we consider our circumstances to be the gauge of God's goodness? If I'm on the mountaintop, I can praise God. I'll even give him credit for some of the things that have gotten me to be there. But when I'm down in the valley, I tend to just complain. I tend to beg God to relieve me from these circumstances and to be able to let me go. And you know what? Sometimes I'm going to be on the top. Sometimes I'm going to be at the bottom. Sometimes I'm going to be anywhere in between. My circumstances are going to change, but God never changes. He is the same no matter where I'm at. He is always worthy of my praise. He is the only one I can, I can boast about. He is God. Can you hear the excitement in David's voice in those first two verses? He's saying this to an audience. It, it ends with, let the humble hear and be glad. If we were there with him in front of that cave and he was talking to us, he would grab us by the shoulders and he would look us in the eye and he'd be like, I will praise God. He is so good. Do you know what he has done for me? And then he would turn and put his arm around our shoulder and go into verse three. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. 
His culmination of his opening is asking us to magnify the Lord together. And Psalm 34.3 is the foundation of our mission statement here at City Light. Magnify Jesus by multiplying disciples and churches. Let's look at that word magnify. I'm sure all of us at one point or another have had a magnifying glass out and we're looking at some kind of bug or maybe our fingerprint and we're trying to see that small thing and we're making it a little bit bigger and we'll move the magnifying glass back and forth until we get into focus. We're able to see it more clearly because the images or the images made bigger. Most of us have probably looked through a telescope, probably at the moon, and we've looked at that and we're able to see the cracks in the mountains that are in there by that telescope, magnifying the moon to be able to display it to us more accurately. My question is, did the object that you were looking at change? No. The bug is still little. It didn't change size at all. It didn't move. It didn't do anything. The moon is still 250,000 miles away. It's no closer to you. The only thing that's changed is your ability to be able to see it, and you have a perspective to be able to see it more clearly. Magnification is not the fact of making something bigger. We are not called to make Jesus bigger. We can't make what is infinite bigger. We can't add to Jesus and make him more significant or more glorious. We can only have a better perspective of Jesus to be able to see him more clearly, to be able to see him in greater detail. John Piper said it this way. The word magnify is tricky. Because microscopes magnify and telescopes magnify, and they do something very different. Magnify with a microscope, and you make a very tiny little thing look bigger than it is. If you try to magnify God that way, you blasphemy. He is not little. You can't make God look bigger than he is. A telescope, on the other hand, is designed to make things that are enormous but look little, look more like they are. That's the way you're supposed to magnify God. God created us to display his glory, to make it look more like it really is. Believer or unbeliever, that's the reason why you're on this planet. All of us have probably taken a picture of something and then magnified it so that you can look at it in a little bit better detail. I think you're going to see up here on a screen a picture of my son, Michael. Yep, there he is. He's in L.A., and he's out on the deck of his uh, hotel, and he's standing there getting his picture taken. And you may not have noticed it, but if you zoom in just a little bit, you can see that his hand is actually pointing at something. And then if you zoom in a little bit more, you can see that, yes, there is definitely something that is there in that landscape. And then if you zoom in the last little bit, if the picture had been, <laughs> if the picture had been in bigger, better focus, you would see that that's the Hollywood sign about two and a half, three miles away from his hotel. You didn't change anything about that picture, but by zooming and magnifying in on it, you actually realize what that picture is all about. Michael wasn't standing on that uh, deck because it was a beautiful day and that he was showing that he was in L.A. He wanted to be able to point out and for you to be able to see the Hollywood sign. That's what we do when we magnify Jesus. It's we look more closely in and see greater detail of him and his love and his patience and his kindness and his wisdom so that when we pull out, we see the picture in greater detail. But if you truly want to magnify Jesus, it's going to take two crucial elements, time and patience. 
There's a story of a biology professor who takes a sunfish and he puts it in a tank and he puts it in front of one of his graduate students. And then he tells the student, I want you to examine this fish and I'll come back when you think you've learned everything about it. Well, the student sits down, starts taking notes, looks at the dorsal fin of the fish, looks at the tail, sees the function of the gills, watch the fish swim around, looks at its eyes to be able to see the color that's in there. And after lunch, the professor comes back and the student displays all the information that he's seen. The professor quietly listens to him and when he finishes, he stands up and he says, not even close. I'm gonna come back when I think you've learned everything about this fish that you can. So the grad student's a little bit discouraged, but he decides he's going to double down on it. Professor doesn't come back that day or the next or the day after that. The student spends 10 hours a day for a week studying this fish, and he begins to realize there are such fine details that he did not notice in the first time that he was looking at it. And when the professor comes back, the students start to present this information, shows him how each scale is shaped and how each scale adds color to the entire beauty of the fish. There was one scale that was misplaced just a little bit. He showed him the shape of the teeth and how each one was different and what their purpose was. He showed that, that there was different colors in each one of the eyes of the fish. And he goes on and on with pages and pages of details that he had written out, pictures that he had drawn. And when he comes to the conclusion, the professor says, now you are beginning to see the glory of this fish. That's what it means to magnify Jesus, to be drawn more deeply, to be drawn closer to him and to soak up his riches. When we say as a church our mission is to magnify Jesus, we want to gaze more intently, study his word in greater detail, and be able to know more about him. Our mission is not to make Jesus bigger. We can't do that. Our mission is to magnify him so that we look and see him in greater detail, to see his character, his purposes, his plans. And this takes time and patience. No matter where you are at in life, whether you've known God for an hour, for a decade, or 50 years, there is more to observe about him, more to see in his face and in his love and his grace, his provision, his righteousness. Study Jesus. Reflect on him. Magnify him. And then most importantly, the, the most important piece of all is share it with others. Magnify Jesus by multiplying disciples and churches. The results are not to meant to be quietly hidden away in your heart. They should be shared with everyone around you and everyone in the world. So, what are some practical things that we do as a church to be able to magnify Jesus? We gather on Sunday morning to be able to worship. Attention is always attached to worship. You're going to give your attention to whatever it is that you are worshiping. We are not getting together to just sing a few songs, to waste up a little bit of time until the preacher gets up here. No. We are here to turn our attention and our worship toward Jesus. That's the reason why first thing in the morning we stop and we do a call to worship is to call our attention to what we are here and what we are trying to do. It's not a routine. It's a point to stop and to be able to direct all of us. Our songs are carefully selected by a team of people. They're vetted through theologically. We sing Jesus-centered songs because we want to magnify Jesus together in song, in fellowship, and in prayer. We preach through Scripture slowly. 
We don't gobble it up like fast food. We sit down at a Thanksgiving meal and that we taste and savor every bite. We want to examine scripture, reflect upon it, memorize it. We do that corporately here on Sunday morning and we encourage and desire that each and every one of you do that throughout your own week. As an expression of looking deeper at Jesus throughout Scripture later this year, uh, this spring, we're going to be spending 15 weeks studying God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's going to be an incredible time for us together to be able to see God more clearly. We have baptisms on Sunday to celebrate what God is doing. We have communion on Sunday to be able to celebrate what he's done. We scatter during the week in city groups, being around each other, celebrating how Jesus is transforming our lives. City groups are a place for you to be able to know people more deeply. I have a clearer picture of Jesus by knowing him better. We're able to learn from each other. We're able to share each other's joys and to be able to share each other's difficulties. In John chapter 13, Jesus says that they will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. We demonstrate our love here on Sunday in our, in our city groups and wherever we go. We look to make our heart align with God's desires, not the other way around. We pray and we seek God Making, our, making his desires our desires. Our mission is to magnify Jesus, to be drawn closer to him, and to make much of Jesus because he is great. Individually, people magnify Jesus by being discipled, presenting the gospel, praying for each other, sharing their lives together, studying God's word to know more, him more deeply, and to be a light in your workplace. We are called to magnify Jesus in everything that we do. So, back to our psalm. Don't forget, David is in a spot where he is not um, doing all that well. Saul is still in pursuit of him and wanting to kill him. He's alone, he's tired, he's hungry, and he realized that the Lord had saved him from certain death at at the hands of the king of Goth. Every believer, no matter what your situation is, should magnify Jesus. The following verses in Psalm 34 show us some of the reasons why we magnify Jesus. There are numerous reasons why. The Lord's grace, his love, his patience, his provision. But David covers three specific aspects in the following verses. The first one, the Lord hears his prayer. The second one, the Lord answers his prayer. And then the third one, David experienced God. The first one, Lord hears David's prayers. Verses four and six work in unison by working in parallel to each other. At the beginning of verse four, David says he sought the Lord. And then in in verse six, David goes deeper and he describes himself as a poor man who cries out to the Lord. David was in a desperate situation and his only hope was to cry out to God. And he knew that if he didn't throw himself at the feet of God and beg for his help, all was going to be lost. I know that oftentimes in my prayer life, I'm kind of negotiating with God. I'm kind of telling him, this is what I want. This is kind of how I want it. And this is what I'll do to be able to get it. God doesn't hear my prayers because I'm important or I'm worthy to negotiate with him because I'm not. I am not important. I am not worthy. God hears my prayer because he chooses to hear me. Psalm 102.17, he regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. God knows that we are poor, lost, and helpless, and he is ready to hear us. God loves the humble and the broken. 
But what does God say about the proud? Psalm 94, two, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The Lord heard David. He heard his pleas of a poor man and he answered him. This is such an amazing aspect of God's character. He hears the humble. We can magnify Jesus by knowing that we are poor, lost, and helpless, and calling out to him. Number two, the Lord answered David's prayer. In verse four, it ends with, God delivered David from all his fears. And verse six ends, he saved him from all his troubles. David has a long list of fears and troubles. One, being killed by Saul, having his head cut off by the king of Goth being beaten, thrown into prison, possibly starving to death. David had gone from being famous and living in a palace to being hunted alone and living in a cave. His fears and troubles are huge, and God stepped in and saved him. David magnifies the Lord because he called out to God and God heard him, and then David magnifies the Lord because God answered him in Goth and delivered him from his troubles. Psalm 116.1, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Do you magnify Jesus in your prayer life? Have you ever been so desperate and afraid and cried out to God? Or do you tend to cover it up with kind of a veneer that maybe I'm still in control and I can pull myself out of this jam if I just work hard enough at it? Do you give praise to God for answering, his, answering your prayers or do you forget that you even prayed it? This last year, God answered our prayer by, uh, of our purchasing the Kelly's carpet building. From the first moment that we started on that project, we knew that it was going to be crazy, busy, complicated, hard, exciting, nerve-wracking, and amazing. Our team ran 150 miles an hour to try to get to that goal. We worked with everything that we had to be able to get there, but we knew that it was God's decision on what was going to happen. There was no human effort that was going to make or break it. It was God who was going to decide. I don't think I have ever felt more comfortable in that complicated of a situation. I don't think I have ever been more confident of God answering prayer. It was hard for it to be no, but there is no doubt in my mind that God said it. And that I know I can praise him for. That reason he said it, he had for me, he had for us, and it was the best thing that could be offered. God answered our prayer. We can magnify Jesus by seeing that he answers prayer. The last thing David shows us is experiencing God. Okay, work with me here a little bit. Sometimes praying can feel a little bit like you're talking on the phone. You know, you can hear the words, but you can't see their face. You really don't really know what's going on. But being in the same room with them that you can talk and see their face and hear the inflection of their voices, to watch their eyebrows, to be able to reach out, touch their shoulder, to be able to hold onto their hand is a different process. David closes this part of the psalm, drawing us to the fact that God is not just listening and answering, but that he is right here with us. We can experience God. In verses 8 through 10, David bursts into praise about what it's like to be near to God, and we are drawn into the reality of truly experiencing him. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Verse 9, fear the Lord, for those who fear him have no lack. 
Verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see. You can take him inside to savor, to be nourished by his provisions. God is not distant. He wants to be up close and to fill us with him. Draw near him and take refuge in his strength. Lean into him, knowing that whatever is going on in your circumstances, he is your refuge. Experience him and feel his protection, his provision. Seek him and there is no lack. How often do I miss what God is doing in my life? I'm not looking to him. I'm not understanding what he's doing. And I'm thinking I'm lacking in something. There is no lacking in God. Whether we are on the mountaintop or whether we are down in the valley, God is full, good, and complete. David draws us into striving into the experience of uh, experiencing God, to be close to him, to see his hand upon our life, and to taste the goodness that he provides. In verse 5, David says that those who look to the Lord or who experience him are radiant and they shall never be ashamed. Which draws my thought to Exodus with the story of Moses as he's coming down from Mount Sinai. He's been up on top of the mountain and he's been talking with God. And when he comes down, his skin and his face is radiant. It is a bright light and it scares the people of Israel. Moses ends up having to put a veil across his face, and he'll keep that veil across his face unless he's actually speaking to the people because he doesn't want them to be fearful. But then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes this. Since we have such a hope, meaning our hope in Christ, we are bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not graze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses covered his face, but we have our hope in Christ, and therefore we can experience God and his grace, and we should not be ashamed of the change that takes place in us. People will see it. They should see our hope in Christ. We do not need to hide our face like Moses did. We can let our light shine brightly and clearly and know that we have the Lord's protection and that he will be around us. We can magnify Jesus by shining our light into the world. Experiencing Jesus is the most important part of all of this. We can't magnify Jesus in a clinic where we look through a microscope or a telescope and remain distant and disconnected from what we're looking at. Jesus did not mean to be distant from you. Jesus isn't an impressive object in which you can, be, which you can observe. He is a glorious God to be worshipped and adored and to be intimate with. Jesus was born a man, lived a perfect life. He suffered and he died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord, you can be saved from the worst thing that you have, which is your sin. But above that, you can be in an intimate personal relationship with Jesus now, this minute that you can experience him and that he can be a part of your life leading you. As I was preparing for this morning, my mind was often drawn back to this last year or so about what God is doing. God has blessed me in a number of different ways. He has heard my prayers, and I've experienced him in a whole new way. Here are just a few things that he's done. God asked me to be obedient in my career and leave my previous job. He provided for me financially while I was in between jobs. Healed me emotionally, grew me spiritually. He saved our home from burning down. He has shown my wife, Tori, and I 
the fruit of long labor in our children in our marriage. We are so amazed by our kids and what God is doing in their lives. Tori and I have been married for just over 26 years, and we love each other more today than the day that we started. God stood by me when my mom died. He gave my dad the strength to carry on by himself. God kept me out of an auto accident on 27th Street. I have no idea how I didn't hit that van. I should have hit that van, but I didn't. He has given me deeper, more meaningful relationship with a couple guys in my life. God provided an oasis for my family here at City Light, a place of refuge, of peace, and truth when we needed it the most. And then he gave me a place to serve here. Totally unexpected, but totally perfect. I am 55 years old, and I feel that God has given me a future that is brighter than anything that has been behind me. I am saved by Christ, and each day dawns with a never-ending hope of forgiveness. What are the things that God has done in your life? Where has he moved and provided for you? Where has he protected you? List them out. Write them down. Even right now, this minute, get your pen and start writing out what God has done for you. See what he has done in your life in these last months, this last year, in these last several years. Magnify God by looking at him closely and seeing where he has been. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. He has provided for you, and you can praise him for that provision. Be attentive to the details. Look long and hard at what God has done for you. Don't be afraid to list the same thing once or twice or three times. Don't be afraid to list something that's insignificant because if God did it, it is not insignificant. Experience his grace and his love. And then city light, let us be about the business of Psalm 34, 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let's pray.